from the hosts that brought you to Coding Westworld. And Westworld the Recapables. Comes the Ringer Prestige TV podcast uh, on Westworld. I'm Joanna Robinson. I'm Danny Heifetz. And I'm David Shoemaker. Welcome to Westworld Season 4 and the Prestige TV podcast feed, where we're going to break down every episode of Westworld Season 4. Every Monday, the day after the show comes out on the Prestige TV podcast feed. Wherever you get your podcasts, but get them on Spotify. Welcome back into the Ringerverse, your Nexus podcast feed for all things fandom. I'm Joanna Robinson. Joining me now after a truly dispiriting, arduous opening shift at Surfer Boy Pizza in Nevada, cleaning up God knows what happened the night before. It's Mallory Rubin. Hi, Mallory. Gotta be clean to enter the mind. (laughs) Big question. Big question for you, Mallory Rubin. Have you ever worked retail? Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I've worked at an ice cream shop. I've worked at a noodle shop. Perfect. Never worked at a pizza parlor, but. What's better, being an opener or being a closer? Oh boy. Probably an opener. I think it's definitely being a closer. Maybe it depends on your age. You have to deal with all kinds of. Bullshit as an opener, I find. With a closer, you have to you just make sure Love things are like reasonably <laughs> clean. And then you can just fuck off to the Taco Bell. All right. We're here to talk about Stranger Things. The finale. I don't even have to caveat it anymore. The finale. All the Stranger Things that's up and available to you on Netflix. That's what we're talking about here today. Specifically, the episode Piggyback which is the finale written and directed by the Duffer Brothers. But, but you know, we're allowed to go all over the shop. We're allowed to go back in time if we want to. Talk about earlier episodes. That's your spoiler warning. All of the Stranger Things that has ever been. And we'll try not to spoil other properties, but a little preview for you. I'm going to talk about <laughs> Star Wars. So um, I think you we'll be mentioning watched... a fair few other properties, actually. Yeah. <laughs> if, you haven't done, if you haven't watched the film The Empire Strikes Back, I recommend it. Uh, all right. So that is what we're doing here today. Uh, this is coming to you a little earlier than I think I, I mentioned before. We just decided why make you wait? 
why make you wait for Stranger Things content? So this is coming to you on a Sunday. And if you're like, well, what else is going on in the Ringerverse feed? I, I really relate. I also like to know what's going on in the Ringerverse feed. Wednesday, the Midnight Boys Pew Pew will be back doing a twofer. A little Miss Marvel, a little The Boys. Together at last. Two great tastes that taste confusing probably together. We'll find out. Um, Mallory and I went back on Thursday to do a Miss Marvel deep dive ourselves. And then Midnight Boys will hear on Friday with their Thor Love and Thunder instant reaction. And then we will be doing the Thor Love and Thunder, of course, deep dive. So that's that's the general roadmap in front of you right now. Things could change, but that's what we have on our plate. That's what we have on our minds. We're really excited for you. And I do want to say something about the fact that this is coming to you on a Sunday. So we're recording this Sunday morning. I know for a fact that some outlets have done some interviews with some Stranger Things talent that they are not allowed to publish until Monday. So if you listen to this on Monday and you're like, but the Duffers, okay, we did not get to read any of those interviews. So we can't account for any actual insights that might be provided in the future. (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) So you can let us know when you read those great interviews, what we, what we messed up and what we missed, but we have, we do not have access to those. So that's, we'll account for those comments when we're preparing for season five. (laughs) Absolutely. <laughs> in 2024, I promise to read all of those interviews. Um, before we get into the episode itself, though, Mallory. Yes. Quick Joanna. question. Joanna. For people. Mallory. Uh, for people <laughs> who love the Ringerverse, mm. who want to participate like in the mailbag section that we have at the end of this episode, who want to know what Joby's up to with his lightsaber, like what should they be doing right now, Mallory? Oh, boy. First of all, Follow the pod, you know, no better way to know what is on the pod than by following the pod. Mm, Follow it on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And then you'll see every new episode that's published. And when you see them, you can listen to them. Also, you can track our requests for mailbags, our podcasts, our questions, our memes, sometimes our spontaneous singing. By following the Ringerverse across our social feeds. We are everywhere. Everywhere. Not in the way that the Stranger Things cast is everywhere. <laughs> you know, spread out across this globe mm. and many dimensions as well. But I don't know. Can you access the Ringerverse TikTok in the Upside Down or the Psychic Realm? Only one way to find out. Absolutely. But the question is, does our service reach... Uh, gulags in the deepest Siberian wastes of Russia. Yes, probably, but let's just talk about that for a second. Let's start here. We're going to go storyline by storyline, beat by beat, and we're starting with Russia. We're starting here mainly because I know that Mallory is really eager to talk about what happened uh, between Hopper and Joyce, but I'm just going to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to frame it this way. Uh, Storytelling-wise, I think it's kind of baffling to focus a lot on an escape from a place only to go immediately back to that place. That is an odd, I think, storytelling choice. That being said, if the only reason they left the prison was so that Hopper could get shirtless and uh, make out with Joyce, maybe maybe it was worth it. Mallory, what do you think? To quote my friends from Billions, worth it, Bob! (laughs) (laughs) Um... I have to say, between Yuri's very 
protracted my women make noise when I please them helicopter explanation and the Joyce Hopper scene. This is one of the horniest episodes of Stranger Things, certainly horniest openings to an episode of Stranger Things in some time. And hey, I'm not complaining. I am complaining about the telephone ring timing, interrupting the long awaited hookup between our beloved Joyce and Hopper. God damn it. But to get the Joyce Moans subtitle. We talk often, Joe, about our favorite <laughs> subtitling descriptions and, and captions. We got some tender emotional music swells. You know, I think the use of swells there feels deliberate. We got both exclaim <laughs> as they were fumbling around, bumping into all sorts of objects and each other. If you ask me at some point in this episode what my season five uh, predictions, hopes, dreams, and previews are, I'm just going just gonna to quote that Joyce Moans. That's, uh, that's where I am with this. <laughs> I uh, I want everyone to know that though Mallory and I exchanged numerous texts about Stranger Things, the they very were pretty much all about this. The <laughs> very the first text I, I got, the very first text I got was a screen cap of Joyce Moans. So yeah. Just, you know, needed you to know where my. Where if my you're focus wondering was. if like this is something Mallory puts on for the podcast, it's not. It's just purely who she is, and we love her to death for it. Um, speaking of death. Uh, we couldn't talk about <laughs> couldn't talk about this when we discussed episode eight, but episode eight and nine of this season are just choked with death watch alarms, right? Characters saying things. The classic in cinema, cinema is one last job, right? One last job, and then I'm out. Okay, that character's probably not going to survive. So we're going to call it a few death watch moments. A big one from episode the the previous episode was. Eddie telling Dustin, like, I love you, never change, man, or whatever. And you're like, okay, okay, Eddie. Yeah, um, that's a wrap. But, but here we have Hopper and Joyce talking about the date that they have to get to. So, you know, so like if you were sitting at, watching, at home watching this episode, like twisting yourself in knots over who's going to survive, this was maybe a moment that you got worried for Joyce and Hopper um, and whether or not they'd ever make that dinner date. Mallory was never worried. I can tell by her face. He, well, here, here's what I'll say. And I think that this is this is probably going to be something that comes up a lot in our discussion today across character sets, both inside of this episode and as we look ahead to the finale. I did not feel particularly worried about either of them in the context of forecasting the date because looking ahead to their date and then having mortal peril thwart those hopes and dreams only to realize that, in fact, no one in this particular equation had died is something that the show has already done with this exact date set up in these exact characters. Now, there is a lot of maybe things will be different this time talk in this episode, which could end up being true at some point in terms of like major, 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 true, like A-level top tier main characters being killed. I think that that probably will be the case by the end of this show. But weirdly, this was an episode where I started to feel a little more secure than I previously had uh, that Hopper and Joyce might be able to work their way towards some version of a happy ending. I do hope that they make time on their pursuit of that happy ending for some, you know, look, I know there's a lot going on, but... <laughs> Kills me every time you do that. Always makes me laugh. <laughs> Love it. So let's like, 
a brief digression to discuss personal hygiene, if you'll if you'll allow it. Now, I know everyone's trying to save the world, but if you're going to go out of your way to find clean clothing to change into, let's wash up a little bit. Take some of that snow and scrub some key areas before you maybe hook up. You know, like I know everyone's busy, but I need somebody to (laughs) a little horse bath in the snow. I need somebody to freshen up that that hard. We did see the under we did see the underwear change. Maybe maybe it was good that like things did not progress beyond uh, some see- shirtless smooching. <laughs> yeah, I was like <laughs> devastated, but also relieved on that level at least. Um, how did you feel about? I, I know we don't actually have time to spend thirty minutes on the the hookup, but how did you feel about the old? Uh, you know, let's let's dip some breadsticks euphemism <laughs> in the dream breakdown. I loved that Joyce was just like that's what you've been dreaming about and really wanted Hopper to give the beat by beat play by play of how their night would go. I was really into this. <laughs> I'm not convinced Joyce knows how to pronounce Chianti. Chianti. I mispronounced it <laughs> while I was slagging around. Sorry. I want actually, I want to go back to this sex and death go hand in hand. So let's go back to this death thing for a second. I want to pull this conversation maybe up to the top here, which is this idea of like, when we look at stranger things, uh, reactions, And as you pointed out to me, like sort of off mic earlier this week, like the people who have already binged through Stranger Things at this point are sort of a select group of people who have made this like a a priority for themselves, right? And there's going to be other more casual fans who are going to sort of parcel out the four-hour chunky final stretch of the season. A select enough group to have crashed the Netflix servers at Midnight Sharp. You know what? That's a great point. Um... (laughs) the the main reaction I've seen, like a lot of people love it. uh, There's a lot to love, but in terms of uh, critiques or disappointments or, or misaligned expectations is the question of like who actually dies in a penultimate season of stranger things. Right. And I want to address that pretty quickly. The, there was a lot of chatter going into these final two episodes that uh, the Duffer brothers had said there would be a body count at the end of the season. Um, and technically there is, uh, if you want to talk about, uh, I mean, the 20, the 22 anonymous town folk of Hawkins, yeah. at the very least. That's but right. um, I just want to clarify that what happened is it's not that the Duff, Duff brothers are going around being like, we're going to kill a bunch of people. It's that they were asked by a reporter, will there be a body count? And they went, mm-hmm. like, what do they, what do you, what do you say to that? You know, not that it's an unfair question, but it's sort of like, do you say no? What do you say when you're trying to like preserve the mystery of your final season? And technically, you know, some characters did die. Um, other expectation setters, uh, Joe Quinn, who plays Eddie, uh, described the finale as just carnage. And, you know, from a certain point of view, specifically his, definitely was, right? Um, And then the trailer clips, you have Vecna saying your friends have lost and you have Robin saying it might not work out for us this time. So that was all setting people up to believe that there was going to be some massive major core character deaths in these final two episodes. And at the end of the day, there wasn't really. There was the classic Stranger Things, uh, Bob Newby death in the form of Eddie, right? A, a death that we had all been kind of expecting. Brenner dies and Max fake out dies. That's that's where we are. I'm not too stressed about it. Uh we could talk more about Max when we get to Max, but like is this some is this a takeaway that you're 
stressing out about or how do you feel about it? Stressing out in terms of like need, feeling like I personally need the death stakes to be higher for the show to yeah. fully work or like, I guess, I mean, so I have my, my season four answer to that and then my season five answer to that. I, we briefly talked about this in the volume one pods when we were discussing Max and I was, I, mm-hmm. I really did not think that they would kill Max and was shocked and appalled when her limbs started snapping in this episode. I think that like the, mo- the, the larger model of Stranger Things killing a major player inside of each season is obviously a consistent pattern right now. We have our on the record established thoughts on Barb, but that was like an in, in season one death of note, right? You already mentioned Bob in season two. Billy is the big character who's introduced and then killed. And I mean, he's introduced earlier, but like as a, it, it was more central player, right? And then dispensed in season three. And then Eddie here. Eddie feels like a more a more major player than those other ones in in part, frankly, just because of the runtime of these episodes. Like we just did spend a really long time with him, even though it was one season, but it still feels like very contained, right? I would also argue that he feels like a bigger character because of the pause, because we had a month to like, you know, if he, if, if people binge this season and then he died, in the finale, you know, it would feel akin, I think, to a Bob death in season two. Like, they really build up Sean Astin as, like, a beloved character in that season just to kill him. Um, that This is what they do. You know, Alexi in season... Like, if you don't care for Billy, there's Alexi in season three. You know, like, there's there's always someone like this. And, um, yeah, I think I think <laughs> a lot of the responses I saw to Eddie's death, and we'll talk about Eddie's death a little bit more in depth, but a lot of the responses I saw were... Um, how could they kill such a fan favorite? How could they kill such a beloved character, something like that? And I'm like, well, because when they wrote this, they didn't, they didn't quite know. know how Joe yeah. Quinn was going to hit, you know, how well he was going to hit with people. So I have a question for you, my like not on TikTok friend, Mallory Rubin. <laughs> have you heard the Chrissy Wake Up remix song? I have not, no. I only, as you know, consume TikToks when Jomi makes them or you send them to me. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm going to I'm going to play it for you right now on mic and it's going to okay. make for great radio. Probably maybe. OK. Chrissy, wake up. I don't like this. Chrissy, wake up. Hey, hello. That is one of the most viral TikTok sounds of like the last month. Incredible. And it's just like yeah. all part of the like weird Joe Quinn, not weird because he's great, Eddie Mystique, you know, like it's it's just been building. But if he had just died in a binge, then I don't think he would have like, it, he wouldn't have become such a folk hero that he that he became in the interim. We had a whole month to speculate about the guitar riff that was featured in the, in the trailer, <laughs> right. et cetera. Right. I, I think though to like... To your the larger question about the how I think about the deaths in the show, I don't know. I'm a little as you and I have talked about outside of our Stranger Things pods and inside of them as well. I tend to really like push back against the idea that stakes can only come in the form of death inside of of shows. Like I really 
do, do not feel that way and, and find it a little bit strange when that becomes the consensus. And so I do not think that a lot of characters need to die in Stranger Things for me to find it emotionally resonant or satisfying at the end. I will say that in Stranger Things, maybe more than inside of some other stories where there's this horror element and the entire framework of the show has operated even as, as, as it has expanded and morphed around the idea that these teenage kids in their, uh, you would think, regular town <laughs> are constantly, you know, we've, we've been talking a lot on our pods recently about like borders and veils and gateways and doorways. Like they're really the doorway between this encroaching evil and humanity. And that doorway has to splinter, right? It's just not plausible that it wouldn't. So I don't know... As much as I like want everyone to be okay, <laughs> I don't know that there's a a way that this show ends without one of the truly core characters dying that would be conceivable. And if you're like, Joanna Mallory, are you going to do a season five speculation section? Oh, we will. We'll get there. That's a, that's, <laughs> that's a promise. And I have some thoughts about that. But I think to your earlier point, I, so when, when Max, I mean, harrowing scene, when Max is, is, you know, being snapped in the air. But I did have, there was a, a small tiny thought in my head where I was like, Mallory said they weren't going to kill Max. And I said, I don't know. I think they might. And I was like, I was like, Ooh, I was right. And then they pulled her back. I was like, Oh, Mallory was Me right. Me too. I was like, another <laughs> one for Joanna. <laughs> don't worry. That one went back in your column. So back oh, in the God. Mallory was right column. Um, but I think, you know, a reason why we are, are trained to be, almost bloodthirsty when we watch these shows is because of our time with Game of Thrones or The Walking Dead, like, the, you know, these shows set up our expectations for stuff like this. And I think that um, the only thing that I will say that I wish the Duffers wouldn't do if they're not going to kill their main characters is stop with the fake-out deaths with their main characters because you've had, like, Will, Eleven, Hopper, Hopper. now Max. Like, yeah. that's... Even Papa. That's a lot. Not a character we cared about, but also Brenner. Yeah. Still, it is a that's lot. a lot. So, like, yeah. if you're not going to kill them, like, don't fake kill them is is how I feel about that. Speaking of Thrones, um, I think ultimately, to zoom back to this Russia plot, I think ultimately what I decided while watching the finale and watching everyone in their little sort of bite-sized chunks for most of the finale as they've been for most of the season, I really have to think that at least some of this has to do with COVID. And we might find that out in an interview or we might not. But, like, keeping... Having people spread out and sprawl out, which was their, like, we want to do Game of Thrones sort of idea is one thing. But Stranger Things always converges back in the end. And so for it to not converge here, maybe that's just a penultimate season kind of thing. I mean, they all do physically come together at the end end. But for it to not reconverge over the final fight feels very unusual. And I really feel like there might have been some COVID reasons for that. But I have that's no. A, that's interesting. Yeah, I was actually gonna. I, I was gonna ask you about that, and if you had any insights on that front, because I, I think like it, because that happens in more than one of the plot lines where we get, you know, we get eleven with the the piggyback insight and and plan hatching, and then the Hopper Joyce. Oh, we they they all have their we can help from here moment. Like multiple different groups say that say a version of that out loud. Well, we can do our part from here, and. The finale, you know, I am I am curious to know your thoughts on on the length and how that felt to you watching it. But just it, it, there's this, you know, very, very long, like mo longer than a normal episode would be stretch of the actual like battle and cutting back and forth 
so frequently between these camps. And there was a part of it just watching it that I thought was like, you know, the TV version of the, the, the Demobats, like screeching and flying through hell. It had this pace and this momentum and was fun and interesting and like exhilarating to watch. And there's something thematically uh, kind of poetic about the idea that so much of the story hinges on this idea of like the heart and the connection between the characters and they can support and help and reach each other even when they are not literally in the same place. You know, the story made the necessities or the choices work for it in that way. But it was, it was very hard to shake the feeling that the heartbeat of the show, which is these people being together, particularly the the kids being together, was just something we were not going to see at all inside of this very long season of TV. And like, that doesn't mean that the pace of the the battle wasn't fun, but like. Mike, we've talked about, you know, the sidelining of Mike more broadly, like basically being reduced in the finale to shouting into a freezer full of water and salt was a pretty passive use of one of the central figures in the show. And maybe you could say if everyone's in the same place, it would just be too chaotic. But I did miss that element of it. I would argue that the major misstep they made and I agree with you. There's so much fun here and there's a lot I loved and I actively cried no- numerous times this finale. Yeah, but too. like, I was in tears um, more than once. <laughs> absolutely. However, I think the thing that the, the mistake they made in terms of us thinking about the runtime and the pacing is putting Robin and Nancy and Steve on a wall for literally 30 minutes. And then you just start to like, you have to start to question how this is all sort of flowing together. Uh, if you have three of your main characters just gently choking to death for 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about this, like, I can help from afar thing. Because I can help from afar really has has to have something to do with these particles. And when you talk about these particles, this dust, uh, if you want to get his dark materials about it, right? Don't um, I always? I yeah. This, <laughs> the smoke monster that we talked about from episode eight. You and I talked about this off mic about how we were trying to, like, really parse what happened here. It feels like what happened is the tanks break open, the dust gets out, and then this dying guard says the others came alive, meaning I think the demodogs in the tank, right? The particles, they called the shadow, the shadow went into them. And then Murray goes and looks at some like fuzzy footage of demodogs like, you know, wreaking havoc uh, in, in the Russian prison lab. And he goes... That's your answer, Hop. That's they went into them. So my best understanding of this is that the shadow particles went into the demodogs and maybe also the demogorgon. And at least with the demodogs, like brought them back to life, possibly if they were dead or has have made them into super juicy demodogs, demogorgons with like a fun particle, smoky center core. Um all that's to say, you got to have those particles there because if the particles are in there and we've decided it's part of the mind flare and Joyce says they're only alive if a gate is open. I don't know how Joyce knows that, but that's okay. Like, that's how they decide that fighting these little monsters here is going to help the big fight elsewhere because it's not just we killed some, we we flambéed some demodogs and, and beheaded a dem, uh, demogorgon. It's we attacked a part of the dust, which is central to 
the hive mind power of the upside down. Is that your understanding of what happened here? Yes, it is. I, I think like re rewatching that, rewatching the finale after our episode eight pod and our discussion about this specifically and paying close attention to not only the the them aspect of this discussion and what was happening there, but just the emphasis throughout on particles, like how often the camera lingered or a character, Joyce, or otherwise drew attention to the particles, the shadow naming this thing. We also, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this soon, but the the massive mythology reveal of the, the mind flyer, Vecna clarity at last, and the initial trip into the upside down for our guy, one Henry Vecna, um, and shaping that smoky, stormy cloud into the spider-like figure that we have called the mind flyer throughout the show, et cetera. So, okay, here are my, here are my thoughts. I, I, the, the TLDR probably don't need to say anything else. It's just, I agree with what you just said. I think that the this feels like one of the most essential things to parse heading into season five in terms of the end game and how to actually thwart Vecna and the threat. But also, and this is the part that I have a little bit of a harder time like wrapping my mind around still. I, I'd be excited to to brainstorm as we go today, the L connection to all of it. I think that particles, promise I'm gonna answer your question in a second particles are manifesting in a couple different ways in the show. And so we have this, sh the shadow, the smoke monster, smoky, whatever we want to call it, the storm, the cloud, this living, moving, sentient thing. We also have the particles that are falling from the sky at the end that we've heard previously, the characters in the show say, those are toxic. Don't breathe those in. My kid's down there. Those look so different though. Those are like snowflake, like, Yes. So they yes. look like Holly's like me, it's snowing. Yeah, right? it's snowing. When, when yeah, they yeah. Look at the sky. yeah. But the reason I mentioned that is because when we get the big mythology download from Vecna, who is to his credit always down for like a fifteen-minute exposition sequence when he should be killing a character, and let me just say, I'm here for it. And I love it because it's such a captivating performance. No one has ever been caught monologuing more often than in such a short period of time than Henry Vecna won. Yeah. Well, he hasn't had a lot of people to talk to for a long time. So, you know, he's got oh, great a great point. <laughs> when great point. Eleven initially destroyed one and opened the mother gate, which we see again as he's then swinging through into the new dimension, he turns, she turns him into those particles, right? And his body ceases to exist. And there's a lot of talk in this episode about like form. And I, one of the things I'm wondering is like, are these two totally distinct things, the particles that he became and this shadow, which like, I think there's a very clear, like, yes, we see that they are different, right? But do they connect to each other? Have they melded in any way? Like, how did his body reform when he poured it in to the upside down and made the discoveries and became this explorer? Was he melding his own particles with this shadow in some way? Like, is that part of the way that he's controlling them? So that's one of the questions that I have that I'm eager to learn more about. In terms of just the hive mind aspect, yes, I agree. That's my reading, too. I think that Coming out of this episode, it feels like the way that Vecna's hive mind is actually operating is that he is directing the shadow into his victims, the Demogorgons, 
the demo dogs, the demo bats, anything that is part of the vines. You know, that was one of the things that was interesting is like seeing the way the vines have spread so much over time, which we already knew. But the upside down looks so different when we initially glimpse it here. And not just because of the the comparatively like smaller vine footprint, but Hawkins isn't there. Right. So. Is. Is that the key? Pulling the shadow out of the hive mind in some way or gaining control over the shadow and the particles in order to thwart Vecna and thwart the hive mind. Because if that's the way that he is connecting everything, that those particles, that shadow, that dust, then controlling it would be the way to undo him. But then that makes me nervous for a lot of the characters, like the Wills and the Maxes of the worlds who have that in them. And what does that mean? Is that a way to save them by purging them? Or are they going to be at risk because they are connected to this thing that maybe needs to fall? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And I think that trying to parse exactly what happens here because like in his in his monologue Henry Vecna one says I became an explorer <laughs> and an explorer of a realm unspoiled by mankind I saw so many things and one day I found the most extraordinary thing of all something that would change everything I saw a means to realize my potential to transcend my human form become the predator I was always born to be so this goes back okay if we're talking about like I Wait, took a lot. You gotta of take. You gotta take a minute here to do the, the 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 pat on the back for yourself. I'm the literally what I'm about to do. Okay. I took a lot of L. <laughs> I took a lot of L's in this episode. Here's my big dub, right? Which is that me saying that like I sort of the mind flare and Vecna are the same thing. Which like yes and no, but certainly this idea of like the mind flare, like Vecna being the one in charge that Dustin got the order of order of authority a little wrong here. Uh, Cause he's just guessing with the best information that he had available. Um, and that fact is one in charge and all of the stuff that we talked about in our episode seven podcast, you can go back and listen to if you want uh, about the spider shape connecting to his fascinating with spiders, about this idea of absorbing things and how that connects to like what he does and what the mind flayer did in season three. Um, he says to Eleven here when he's monologuing, like, uh, I found a way to take some of your power. And that's what happened in season three, right? That they create this like gooey spider thing made out of different uh, residents of Hawkins. Super gross. Still one of the grossest Disgusting. things that the show has ever done. <laughs> and what it wants to do is take take Eleven's powers. And like our understanding of the time in season three was that it wanted to take Eleven's powers because it just wanted to like depower her. But what we find out is that Henry wanted some of her powers because she's the one who was able to open the gates in the first place. So he takes some of her powers in season three. This is my understanding. He takes some of her powers in season three via the goopy mind flare thing. And he is then able to open some gates for the first time. Right? Does that yes. sound, sound right? That's Great. right. I, I sought a means to open my own doors. I sought your power is what he says here. And one of the things that we heard him say, we now understand through Billy in the, at the end of season three was all this time we've been building it for you. Yeah. And we get a little flash of that to like underline that that's the connection they're trying to make there. So this is, you know, this is the thing that Papa said in last, in the last episode that we're unsure if, if there will see, if we will see more 
fallout from that in the final season. But in terms of like he's he absorbs people's powers and we don't know where he's been. One of the places he's been is Starcourt Mall. (laughs) And like, actually, I think he he attacked Elle in uh, Papa's cabin. Right. Like that's that's where it was either the buyer's house. Or yeah, yeah the, bite, the, the bites in the cabin, which is where the, the cabin fracture, the whole and then they yeah, go to the yeah. grocery store. I love stories set in grocery stores. Joe, can I just? This is not. This is a quick ten second diversion. But can I just tell you that when I was a kid, I used to have like really protracted fantasies about getting stuck in a mall or a grocery store and having to like just like. Oh, I was gonna say eat my way out, but I know you'll say phrasing, so I'm just gonna <laughs> anticipate that. But I used to think how fun to just be a kid in a grocery store with no one around and get to just have ice cream all the time and as many flaming hot Cheetos as I want. So I always love that part where they're in the where they're in the store. Continue. Did you ever see the movie Career Opportunities? No. It's a Jennifer Connolly 80s movie where they're locked in a Target. Um Okay. Gonna add it you, to the you'll list. probably probably enjoy it. So I mean all of that's to say, all of that's to like help us understand the particles and how they're connected to the hive mind, all of that stuff. But also it's a convenient way for Joyce and Hop and Murray to help without having to make it back to the States, right? Because the particles are in these monsters, we can help. Murray gets to do the full-blown, uh, the flamethrower thing. And um, have you ever seen the film Arachnophobia? Certainly not. <laughs> Truly one of the scariest movies no. that I ever Ron watched Weasley in my childhood. and I have never seen that movie. No. <laughs> but there's a great, like, John Goodman with the flamethrower just, like, torching a bunch of uh, spiders. It's a 1990 uh, horrifying horror movie that will make you never want to take a shower again. But um, God. I was just oh. thinking, like, with the, with the oh. spiders and the Vecna, I was like, I, don't, I wonder if that's a arachnophobia reference. It may or may not be. But, um... Yeah, and then and then oh, I ha- we had a couple people ask where the sword came from that Hopper uses. That sword was brought in to the fight initially in the first half of the season when the prisoners are going to go in and fight the Demogorgon. One of them picked up a sword that was just an option in their arsenal. So um, yeah, all right. Anything else we want to say about Russia before we leave? Do are we going to come back to the? Any the El Vecna Mind Flayer Vecna stuff later? Or we should we do that all here because I have a couple follow up thoughts on that part. I think Let's I'm done now. with Russia. <laughs> yeah, um, Russia goodbye. Yeah, peace out. I really liked this reveal. I thought of you immediately, and I thought not only of you, Colin, your your theory shot here, but of a point that you've made in other discussions as well about how the most satisfying answer is always going to be a person, right? And how right that feels here, not only as a storytelling choice, but inside of this tale where with Vecna and L and the link between them, there's often, for, for, for both of them individually, but also collectively, this through line of how they assess and think about humanity, right? And so that like adds heft to it. And so to get the you know, an explorer of a realm unspoiled by mankind, Vecna line here. And it was it was really fun as he's looking up at Smokey, the mind flayer before he shaped it. You see like the little, the little demon dog crawling on the rock. And, uh, you know, you think back to like one of his other infamous monologues from 
the volume one finale where he was talking about humanity as this pest and the way he said, like, multiplying and poisoning our world all while enforcing a structure of their own. This is like villain 101 shit. And I don't even mean that in a bad way, right? This is archetypal. He is doing the very thing. Like, he's becoming the thing he hates, right? He's doing the very thing that he is critiquing and maligning humanity for. Colonize the upside down. He gentrified it. And now he's going to take what he has made and warped and weaponized inside of the Upside Down and spread it into Hawkins through this, you know, four-gate, now mega-gate, a cruel, oppressive world dictated by made-up rules. That was what he said at the end of Volume 1. Well, that's that's what he's unleashing now, right? And, like, the way that he has talked about spiders, you know, they're solitary creatures, deeply misunderstood gods of our world. Like, that is the thing that he's seeking, that godly status, I think there's a like almost word for word Deathly Hallows Stranger Things season four comp to do here. Oh, yeah. There's a like, little bit of her and him. Okay. It's, you know, yeah, it's the 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 Horcrux, but not just that. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll save it. We'll come back to it because I think that feels very germane. Supposed to meet Jazz at Taco Bell in like ten. So let's 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 zoom through a couple of things that happened this episode. Um, like t- Team Callie, we already talked about them a little bit. Um, Argyle coming through with some great strategy in a in a clutch moment. Not not bothering to question whether or not any of Eleven's powers are real or whatever. He's just like, sure, yep, okay, I got what you need. And this is not, you know, sometimes you see things seeded early and you're like, well, clearly that's there. So, you know, like Mike, Mike's inability to say, I love you. Clearly that's there for this reason. But like um, the whole existence of Surfer Boy Pizza being to pay off a place to put 11 with plenty of salt. Didn't see it coming. Loved it entirely. Great stuff. stuff. (laughs) My favorite part of the whole infiltrating Surfer Boy Pizza sequence other than Argyle 2.0, which is how this other stoner dude is is labeled. Gotta meet in the, Chaz and uh, Taco Bell. Who among <laughs> us? <laughs> was Jonathan trying to like speak Argyle? He's like, my dude. <laughs> Incredible. We are not going to ask you to do this for free. Like, I was just like, this is a great job. Great Charlie Heaton moment. A great Jonathan moment. Jonathan's saying it'll make all your troubles float away like the seed pods of a dandelion in the wind was remarkable. Best Jonathan episode in a long time. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, yada, yada, yada. They set everything up. Ariel takes a moment to make a pizza while they set everything up so they can have some sustenance. Like, what a guy to have on the team. Great, like, great Samwise Gamgee energy here. Okay. Um, Jonathan will have a follow-up scene to their, like, you know, what we noticed in the previous scene with Jonathan noticing Will in the rearview mirror while they're making the brine. Um, this beautiful, beautiful shit from Charlie Heaton. Uh, Talk to me about how you're feeling about it. I just don't want you to forget that I'm here and I'll always be here no matter what because you're my brother and I love you and there's nothing in this world, okay? Absolutely nothing that will ever change that. (laughs) So moving and so beautiful and a really lovely performance from both of them. And we chatted last episode about how just that glance from 
Jonathan in the rearview mirror and that moment of clear recognition was not only such an important thing for Will and his journey, but to to rekindle and reestablish this brotherly bond. Like I was I was weeping watching this and I have really missed the Jonathan Will bond as a central heartbeat in the story because it's always been one of my favorite things. And, you know, this moment of recognition and then active support and encouragement from Jonathan, but paired with like the, 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 what was unsaid, right. Which is like, you can do this on your time frame, and, and it's okay. Like it was just such a beautiful encapsulation of, of love without condition, right. Like the unequivocal, presence that you can have for another person. And like, you know, we talked last pod about the, the the moments earlier in the show where they where Jonathan has encouraged Will to just be who he is. And I was thinking back to like the, you know, the clash listening party scene in season one where they're sitting there on the bed and they're talking about music, but they're just talking about everything. They're talking about life and, you know, they're talking about their father. And Jonathan says, you know, he's trying to force you to like normal things and you shouldn't like things because people tell you you're supposed to. Okay. Like Jonathan has always been the person in Will's life who reminds him that it's okay to be who he is in all of the different ways that he is and that he, he should surround himself with the people who remind him of that, not the people who make him feel ashamed of it. And this was a, this was a lovely scene to bring all of that together. Hmm. <laughs> who might be making Will feel ashamed of his slow progress through life? Could it be Mike Wheeler, the villain? I'm sorry, no, we'll talk about Mike in one hot second. But I just want to say, Jonathan and Will, I thought the scene was so beautiful. And it is exactly what I'm talking about when I'm saying Stranger Things is at its best when it's trusting its audience. Because at no point does Jonathan say, I know you're gay, dude. And that, you know, like, but like, but we know the subtext is there and you don't need to, it's just all there. And you don't need to have you underline it for us. We get it. It's beautiful. It's emotional. I loved it. Meanwhile, Mike is doing some cute shit with glasses. I'm, I'm not going to begrudge him this. Mike, Mike, like making the glasses and, and being kind of cute and funny with uh, cool. 11. This is the most I've liked him in a long time. So good job for Mike. Um, I was talking shit on Mike in the last episode and we got a lot of responses both on Twitter and somebody emailed me about this saying, should we cut Mike more slack because he's a 15-year-old boy and his obtuseness and his self-centeredness is core to a 15-year-old boy experience? And on the one hand, I have some room for that. I definitely do. On the other hand, the show does that no favors by trying to position, at least in Will's eyes, and I understand that Will is a crush, but at least in Will's eyes, Mike as the heart of this group, when Mike is the least emotionally intelligent of these boys. And then also Mike suffers in comparison to characters like Lucas and Dustin, who have absolute banger emotional, you know, moments in this episode. Just Unparalleled, fantastic stuff. And so Mike, by comparison, just seems like peevish. And, you know, he he has this reach out to L, I love you speech that he gives, but none of it just feels another one on the the Joe Ledger there called that one. It, it just doesn't it doesn't hit me the way that, you know, uh Dustin shedding even a single tear hits me. You know what I mean? And so, like, I want to ask you. <laughs> my Harry Potter expert friend, my experience reading Order of the Phoenix 
mm-hmm. was uh, I have rarely ever been so annoyed with a character as I was with, with Harry. Harry Potter and that book. Yeah. And sure. a friend of mine who who loved the series as well was like, uh, but that's the point. This is the stage in his evolution of going through young adulthood that the, this is a stage you go through. So if like Mike is having his Order of the Phoenix seasons, because I would say it's like two in a row here where I'm not a big Mike fan. Like, is that something that feels intentional or accidental? Like, where where are you in all of that? Good question, because I am experiencing a little bit of dissonance with with Mike for for that reason, really, where, you know, there's a part of Mike's journey that that feels like it maps on pretty clearly to adolescence in general, right? You grow up, you lose some of your deftness maybe, or you become very selfish and inward looking because you're trying to figure out your own shit. We even get a moment like with in the, in the beautiful Jonathan will sequence where Jonathan's like, that wasn't about you. That was about me trying to figure out my own shit. And like Jonathan's older and still processing how to like navigate his own feelings and supporting the other people in his life. Like that's just a thing that all of us have to have to figure out for ourselves. Right. And, and, and well, and Steve has the whole thing where he's like, hey, remember how when you met me, when you met me, I was a piece of shit. And thanks to what happened, I am now one of the best TV characters of all time. So well, look good for me, <laughs> you know? Totally, yeah. <laughs> what a thump it was. Can't wait to talk about the the, the language choice. And the, the thumping? You know, right, thumping, thumping my head <laughs> sequence later. Got some thoughts. <laughs> but um, if Mike is in his crawling backwards phase or his Order of the Phoenix phase, I think that the thing you need given that Mike was not always this kind of character, much like Harry was not always in his Order of the Phoenix state, right? Mike was, oh God, I wish I could remember who tweeted this, but there was the tweet of like, this is just not the same character, like the one who doesn't see his friend crying next to him, who like was willing to literally jump off of the the cliff to protect the people that he loved in, in prior seasons, right? Um, apologies for for not being able to, to recall the handle there, but like, so many moments in the early, in the first two seasons of the show hinge on Mike's active pursuit of protection and the party. And again, like we've talked about this a lot. The fact that the characters are relating to that idea of the group and the party in different ways is like, actually, I think part of what's interesting about the show, the thing that you need, the thing that like makes the order of the Phoenix Harry plot to me so fulfilling ultimately is that Ron and Hermione are there to say, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, we have given up everything in our lives to be here for you. Do not treat us this way. Like, who's going to do that for Mike? And we had a little bit of it with the, like, I dump your ass stuff in season three. And I, you know, now in hindsight, it's like, God, I'm sure glad that we got the one and a half minutes with Ellen Max that the entire story is going to hinge on. Um, but like we, I think we need a little bit more of that. I think we need people actively challenging Mike on why he is looking inward so much. Because the thing is like our 15 year old boy is going to be the most emotionally intelligent people. I mean, are any 15 year olds? I think that's a valid point to raise, but Mike's best friend in the world was sitting next to him in that car sobbing. And he didn't ask if he was okay. He didn't ask if he was okay. Meanwhile, like imagine if like Lucas or Dustin had been there. Do you know? Like, yeah, uh, I agree. In contrast to having Ron or Hermione be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You have Will being like, you're the heart, man. You're the heart and soul. Okay. Our producer Carlos is weighed in with Mike is trash. So I think that's a great place for us to move on. (laughs) 
Oh, boy. Tough time for me. Uh, for, former 15-year-old boy, Carlos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if Mike... I do think it's interesting to consider whether, like, some of this is priming us for being more ready to say goodbye to Mike in season five. Does that feel like a like a a, a, a bad read? No, or it could feed into my big theory for season five, which I will talk about at the end of the podcast. So, um, folks in the industry, we call that a tease. <laughs> <laughs> this time, right? No, 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 no. You didn't run. You're gonna have to look after those little sheep for me, okay? No, you're gonna do that yourself. Nah, man. Say I'm gonna look after them. Say it. I'm, I'm gonna look after We've talked about a few dubs for the, uh, prognosticating power of Dwayne Robinson. Here's where I take an L, which is uh, definitely I, thought you, you didn't gonna die. take any L's. Joe, you got two <laughs> of the biggest things that happened in this finale. You crushed it. I definitely thought Eddie was going to die at the beginning of episode eight. So delighted we got to spend so much more time with him. That made me really happy that we got to um, definitely got the song wrong that he was going to play on top of the uh, trailer in the upside down here. However, I will say Tons of TikTokers and Redditors figured this out merely by watching the finger placement in the trailer footage. It, I have saw some videos that were just like some of the most incredible detective work I've ever seen. So Master of Puppets by Metallica. Also, uh, the people who figured this out also pointed out that um, Eddie has like a had like a puppeteer tattoo on his forearm. So like Master of Puppets and Vecna is like the, ma- you know, like when you watch the kids go up in the air and their arms sort of crack and... Ben likes a very puppet puppet sort of uh but even moment. just anyway. the, the the hive mind control. Very like, you know, master mm-hmm. puppeteer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would like to one of the things I would like to do between seasons, and by would like to do, I I think what I mean is read an article by someone on the internet, but maybe we'll do it here, is like really go through all of the lyrics of all of the needle drops and see what the roadmap is for the conclusion of this show, which I feel like mm. is there, you know. I feel like there's like a, a James Gunn Guardians reading of the song selections to do in terms of like what it might reveal about the plot. People have probably done this already. I thought about that. So there's a, there's a, you know, there's a callback to season one with the Moby yes. song that That's plays. Right. So the song that played when Joyce and Hopper were trying to bring Will back in season one and successfully. Um is a Moby song called When It's Cold I'd Like to Die. One of the few like anachronistic song like you know, I don't think they've gone that anachronistic since uh, they used that in season one. That's a 1995 song. Um, and then it plays again in in this episode. And there's a lyric about, where were you when I was lonesome, locked away with freezing cold, someone flying only stolen. I can't tell this light so old. So when it's cold, I'd like to die is a very literal, like Will was freezing to death in the upside down like that was what was happening in season one but i don't know i'm i'm ever since you read read me a brand chapter in last week's episode i'm on the lookout for flying references we not to uh, I, I feel bad for after we you transitioned us away from mike for bringing him up again but he gave us the inverse of that line of the 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 papa setup of building toward flight but one of the things that mike said to l was 
I can't lose you. You can do anything. You can fly. You can move mountains. I believe that. I really do. But right now, you just have to fight, like sort of inverting where the flight was there. Also, um, you know, that whole just like real Bridget Jones, <laughs> Mark Darcy stuff. In the I like you just as you are. Exactly who you are. Yeah, just <laughs> anything that makes me think of Colin Firth. Get a, I get a, also a thought of Bridget Jones in that moment. So Impossible thank you so much for to. being on my wavelength. <laughs> Oh God! But yeah, the flight—the flight mention again. Yeah. What is this about? Gosh, she literally has to fly in the finale. I get—I mean, the final season, maybe. But like, to what end? We'll find out. Um, the <laughs> <laughs> was that the worst answer to a "what could this mean?" question? I don't know. We'll find out. At least it wasn't. I haven't thought about it. Or Incredible. I, I don't know. Um, okay. Let's go back to Eddie, my our dearest darling Eddie, yeah, who, who dies. We expected him to die. Did he have to die like this? Let's uh, let's let's dig into it. All right. So he's in the upside down. He grabs the guitar. He grabs the upside down guitar instead of his like, you know, instead of taking the guitar from his trailer through into the upside down, he grabs the guitar, which I guess has been hanging there since 1983. Um, and I thought that was just kind of cool and extra metal for him to like take this like upside down instrument right i i love this because it you know it obviously is his guitar he's in his room he's walking toward the mirror where he has it hanging one of the things i loved was that the room is so consumed like completely blanketed in the vines and you know so much of the finale is oh god like it is 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 poor dear sweet robin gonna accidentally it's robin touch gonna trip on the, some vines. Yeah. yeah and the guitar is untouched pristine and Eddie gets to say it's like she was destined for an alternate dimension and I think we both have um we and you know much of the internet have some notes on how our our dear sweet beloved Eddie went out here but this particular moment was great like this especially you know you you highlighted the like this is music moment like Eddie doesn't fit in so often even inside of a group of people who have come to love and 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 really like cherish him and this thing that is like the embodiment of his taste and his passion just getting to like shine and and stand there as this like a beacon of untouched joy i i thought was was really cool and then he shreds <laughs> i'm pretty sure that if you yep this is true okay so if you go to bc rich guitars dot uh, com, uh, bcrich.com. They have the special edition guitar that they made for this Stranger Things episode, which you could pre-order, and it is uh, $900, and you can get it in Relic Crackle, which I think is the color of it in the right side up, and you can get it in Liquid Black, which is the car- the color of it in the upside down. Pretty sure that's the case. Which one are you going to um, get? <sighs> oh, it's Liquid Black for me. The relic crackle looks a little too leopard printy for me, even though they're they're going where like crackling hellscape is what they're going for. But um, how are you? Are you going to get liquid black or or uh, relic crackle? You know, I think I'm just going to stick in the 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 Dustin role of. Uh, oh, you're on the monitor for me. You're on the amp, just, and then yeah, with the countdown, doing some cosplay, cheering you on from the side, and shouting most metal ever, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, first of all, also, I forgot to put this in the notes, but we need to talk about their their battle fits because Dustin's like, um, I don't know, swamp guy sort of 
look that he put together was absolutely my favorite. Did you have a favorite? I got strong Ewok energy from Dustin. Mm. You know, oh, I it felt, yeah. and, and maybe that's not what he was going for. Maybe it was, but that was that was uh, felt like I was just there on Endor with my guy Dustin, a known Star Wars enthusiast. If there's another, if there's like another comp that people know about, like if it's like a predator comp or like something like that, like let us let us know. But I love I love thinking of him as an Ewok. Um, can I just tell you that when he was like looking out for the Demobats, uh, I got strong. Legolas and Krebin from Dunland, uh, sort of vibes from him. One of my favorite Lord of the Rings lines, I love it. by the way. Incredible. Um, so we get we get the look at us, we're not heroes, and then they have their mission, which is to distract the Demobats. And then I guess the plan was to the de- be in the trailer, which was supposed to be impenetrable, and then go back up through the portal and be safe. But the but the bats get into the trailer because they forgot about the vents. They kind of forgot about the vents. <laughs> and <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, a, version, a version of this death that I would totally be able to hang with is Eddie feeling like he sends Dustin up through the portal and cuts the the sheet rope and runs so that the bats will not go up through the the gate and hurt Dustin and or anyone else in Hawkins. And that's kind of what happens here, right? That's kind of what we're seeing. But it it gets kind of messy and mixed up. And then also he takes his stand against the Demobats. And then because of what Murray does over in Russia, the Demobats drop dead like a minute later. And so I'm not alone in this feeling. I don't mind that Eddie died. This is this is what the character was written to do: was to show up, have an arc of like I'm not going to run away and die. I loved him. I would love more of him, but I'm not mad that they killed him. I think we could have made his death feel a little bit more metal, you know. Even if he had like gone out playing the guitar, I think that would have been more metal than like this this interesting thing that we got here. How do you feel about it? Yeah. So. <sighs> I broadly, I broadly agree. I think that Eddie's death felt inevitable. And as sad as it was, and as much as we adore him, I've kind of made my peace with the <laughs> eventuality. It, for, for, I actually started to feel like, wait, why? And again, there's always, there's like, I have, I experience a lot of dissonance when I'm uh, analyzing Stranger Things from like, I have my kind of reflexive response and I'm like, well, maybe this makes sense. This was one of those moments too, because of the whole, the the goodbye chat with Steve and co before they even like got to the, the, the concert phase, the whole decoy thing, you know, we're not heroes. Like I get it. Of course, that part of Eddie's arc is, you know, he doesn't have to live, but he does have to decide not to run, right? I I actually was like, I had a really hard time accepting a version of the show where Dustin, who has been on the front line for so many of these seminal showdowns, is like, yeah, I'm not a hero. I'm a decoy. That was really weird to me. Mm, and yeah. I know that Steve has his protective instincts, and that's part of the thing that Steve still needs to work through, and that's okay. But what version of Stranger Things leads us to believe that we, we should be like relegating Dustin to 
sideline decoy status. That was just strange. Now, like, again, that's a great point. It builds toward the moment of Eddie being able to embrace not running. But here's a structural issue that I had with the episode. And this was one of the only times where I was like, maybe this is uh, this is actually just this should not have been this long. Now, we haven't really talked about that. And I'll just say quickly. The length, I think, bother, bothered me less than maybe in other scenarios because I normally just sit down and watch eight hours of Stranger Things in a row, right? So, like, the fact that it was one episode, if you start to think about that, then it feels strange. But watching three hours of Stranger Things in a row is not that unusual. Flashbacks, not only to earlier things in the show that we did not need to see again because we understand them, but a flashback to something from this episode in terms of that, like, we're not the heroes, we're the decoy thing. Bizarre. We do not need to be reminded of that. It was mere moments ago, and we are adept enough as viewers to understand the, the arc here. I feel the same way about one of his dying words being, I didn't run this time. I'm like, we got it, man. Like, you didn't have to say it for us. And again, this is like the flip side of the Jonathan Will conversation where I'm like, sometimes Stranger Things writers don't like trust their audience to get the arc, you know, to get the beauty of the arc without him saying it as he dies. That being said, all of those logistical problems aside, Still cried. <laughs> when Gaden Matarazzo cries, and not only cries, but snots as he cries. Oh, oh yeah. I was done. When he was like pounding Eddie's chest, oh. uh, conceding finally, so I'm going to look after them. That was heart-wrenching, as was Eddie saying, I think it's finally my year. I love you, man. Oh, and we learned on Twitter. Great. Yeah. <laughs> the I love you, man, was, was, was Joe Quinn. Joe Quinn improvised that. He oh also improvised the best line, the best line of episode eight, which was big boy to Steve was also a Joe Quinn special. Incredible. Actually, stuff. My, actually, my favorite, my favorite line from this episode was also uh, improvised, but it was by a different actor. And we'll get to that in a second. But um, yeah. Yeah. Like the saying out loud, I didn't run away this time. You're you're right. Like we we don't need that. I guess. It's again, it's the distinction between maybe what we need as viewers and what the characters need. Like Eddie needs to prove that to himself and I can rock with that. But we, the show needs to trust us to know that that's what Eddie is thinking when he made that decision, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just like, again, I mean, like there's just like a few things, like if, if because they had walkies with um, the the house crew like, if, I mean, I think the house crew was, like, on the wall at that point. But, like, if the house crew got in the walkie. Wait, I'm glad you mentioned this. What happened with this and with just the talking? Did I miss something? Definitely possible. With, like, the we can't speak, we have to write write things down and he'll hear us. Like, I thought maybe that was so, like, they could fool him into thinking only Max was there. But he, the whole his whole thing is that he can, like. Oh, I know. Psychically reach everyone. I, I know, but I think that was the whole thing is like, we're going to communicate with light flashes and not talking so that it just seems like it's just Max here offing herself up as sacrifice. Uh, look, in terms of a, a a deus ex machina, in terms of the rules of the universe, hardly on par with learning that Eleven can resurrect the dead <laughs> in terms of like, hey, this is a thing now and we're literally going to say we make our own rules to explain it. But I did think that was a little, yeah, the, the switch in how they're communicating with each other was slightly perplexing. But they had a walkie... Uh, they had they got on the walkie before they went to the house. And maybe the whole thing was like, once we're in the house, we're not going to make any noises or whatever. Right. They have their phases and their light signals. Yeah. Since they had the walkie, like, if they had gotten the walkie and been like, hey, man, we need more time. 
like, you know, your amazing rendition of Master of Puppets wasn't enough. We need more time. And Eddie had been like, I'm going to buy them time, the time that they need. Like that, even that felt more logical to me than when we got. There was also like Nancy saying that we, no one moves to the next phase until like everybody knows that we're cool. So yeah, that was a little... Also, like, I don't want to rob Eddie of his his metal shredding moment. That was dope. But like, couldn't they have just played a like, I don't know, put on a put on a, a tape, a boombox and our main <laughs> tape. A hundred percent. hundred percent. They could have. Anyway, Eddie's Eddie's dead. This was his year. He has graduated. He has moved on. Will the town of Hawkins learn the truth? Because one of the really genuinely kind of tragic end notes of the episode is that everybody thinks Eddie is the murderer still. And Dustin hands over the guitar pick and provides uh, Eddie's uncle with some closure and some peace. But the bulk of the town is still, you know, defacing and vandalizing his missing person poster. The local news reporter is calling him the Munson murders. Like Eddie's legacy is not a reflection of who he was. I don't want to dwell too much on the negative because there is a lot that I did love about this episode, but I will say, like, to skip forward to the coda, I have a lot of questions. Everyone just being hunky-dory fine, except, like, Dustin being the only one to, like, care that Eddie's dead, seemingly. Like, the rest of the teens are just sort of like, like, you know, Robin and Steve and Nancy spare not a, a thought or a second for Eddie. And that, you know, Joyce took a whole season to be sad about Bob. So, you know, like I would have liked a little bit more. Yeah. Even just compare it tonally to the coda of season three, where everyone's the packing up and Elle reading the letter and the like really palpable despair that is permeating each of those rooms and each of those vehicles that they're in. And like, you know, there's some of it that they're just channeling into action and purpose with Robin and Steve and Dustin going to the gym that has been repurposed into a shelter and trying to help and uh, the other gang going to the cabin to, you know, make it another uh, a safe harbor again for Elle. Like, you know, uh, our, our gal Karen uh, remembers that she has a son when the whole server went there. Was, that was like a funny one, right? Where Everybody is so overcome when the surfer boy van unloads, but I'm kind of like, wait, yes, we know that they have been trying to reach them unsuccessfully and have been very worried, but they're just kind of like cheerfully talking about the stuffed animals in the box instead of being like, will we ever see our Where's Will? Members again. Where's that our said, child Will? Yeah. Everyone in Hawkins seems to be operating at a very leisurely pace because two two days later, still a long line of cars to, to leave town there. So. Yeah, takes a while to pack up all of your life's belongings, I suppose. All right, let's move to a, a part of the episode that I absolutely loved that worked extremely well for me, which is Max and the Sinclairs in the murder house. Okay. What a what a what an episode for Max and Lucas. Whew. Yeah. Okay. So Sadie Sadie Sink has been like crushing it all season. We've we've shouted this out before. The the Duffers had said that like Kayla McLaughlin, who like when we're talking about characters who've been sidelined or not really well used, I would say Lucas has been like uh suspect number one in that regard for like the last couple seasons. But they started the season strong by giving him this like interesting, I thought, plot line with, you know, the basketball team. And then his Max stuff, and then just let him rip in this episode. And he absolutely, like, just 
came through in so many ways. Um, the the Death Watch alarm did sound for me with the like, let's make a movie date. I know you already mentioned that like <laughs> that didn't work for you with Joyce and Hop, but it, I was just like, oh Cons- no, don't it was, make yes, don't make plans, me. don't make date plans. Um, the thing that I love about Caleb McLaughlin and Sadie Sink is that, uh, and I found this out in, a, in an interview recently, that they knew each other before Stranger Things because they were both like tiny kid actors on Broadway at the same time. They were in two different shows on Broadway. Um, uh, and Gaten is also was also a Broadway kid before he's a Stranger Things kid. So I just have to say, like the theater kids, crushing it this season, just absolutely killing it. Um, I love the blue light. I love the lighting design and all of that. I love like it made me think of the conversations we had around Obi Wan with like the blue lightsabers and the red, you know, Vecna's red light and the blue light. You know, like those lanterns, which I guess are like I don't know, bug zappers, black lights. I don't know what they are, but like the the production design to give them those blue light lanterns was so smart, so stylish, incredible. And then we get this like confession from Max, which is not entirely different from what we saw in Dear Billy, but it didn't, it didn't feel redundant to me. How did it, how did it work for you? Yeah, I agree. Everything with Max feels like it's there's forward momentum. And, you know, again, there are these moments of, of tension where you as a viewer are trying to wrap your 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 arms around what Max is really thinking and feeling, but in a way that really works. Because again, that feels true to life that you would have this doubt and be at war with yourself over your own guilt and your own shame about the choices that you've made, right? And then the payoff, like for something like that, that, that kind of seesawing to, to, to ultimately really land, you need that payoff of the like extraordinarily heart-wrenching moment where Max is... Uh, initially dying at least in Lucas's arms is, and saying that she's not ready and that she does not want to die and that she do- cannot feel and cannot see and, and does not want to uh, does does not want her time with these people and in and, and, and Hawkins with her friends and her family to be over right and has that clarity that real clarity that was like so beautifully performed from both of them and uh, really like devastatingly sad. Again, I was, I had a, with just the, the, the initial Vecna Max of it all, a like almost visceral. I kind of can't believe we're seeing this happen to Max. Why is this happening to Max? Uh, I wish that this were not happening to Max response. Um, but I was like deeply, deeply moved watching Caleb and, and, and Sadie perform that. And their relationship has been so lovely because, you know, you made the, the the really great point in our volume one pods that we had gotten this like incredibly uh, compelling initial exchange between them about like, are you a ghost in your own life? And is this really the thing that you want? And like that teenage impulse to kind of like hurt somebody you love, but also like say something really true, but that doesn't fully recognize maybe their perspective. And, you know, that Lucas um, Mike exchange about, you know, has it has it ever occurred to you that we don't want to be popular? And Lucas saying, like, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of being bullied. I'm tired of girls laughing at me. I'm tired of feeling like a loser. We came to high school wanting things to be different, right? I and then how we we sort of left that in the rest of, of volume one. One of the obviously this was mostly about Lucas and Max, and Jason is, I think, a real like 
couldn't have been happier to see our guy Jason get literally torn in half by a spreading maw of, of a, uh, an upside down <laughs> gate. Great stuff. Mm. Uh, the, at, at, to quote my favorite scribe, Joanna Robinson, as you put it in the, the, the Google Doc, quite literally, rest in pieces, Jason, iconic stuff from you in the notes. <laughs> but there was this great great Lucas moment. I was so glad that there was room in this massive finale. There needed to be room for it. And there was for him to sit like it was the you're wrong about Eddie. No, but I was wrong about you. I never should have let you in the door. Jason line and Lucas saying, and I never should have knocked. I thought I wanted to be like you popular, normal, but it turns out normal is just a raging psychopath. Like it was quick. It was brief. But we needed that. It was such an important thing for Lucas and for this larger central theme in the show about embracing who you are and not being afraid to love the things you love and love the people you love. Like, I, that was one of my favorite quiet little moments in the finale. I loved it. I loved it, too. I never should have knocked. It's an incredible <laughs> so bit good. of writing here. <laughs> so Caleb, Caleb getting to play, Caleb is Lucas getting to play both, like, the Vecna Lucas stuff, which is just sort of like, which is fun and scary and great. And even though we saw that already happen with like, uh, Max's mom, like it's still just like worked really well the way that they shot it. Yeah. Yeah, Where you're like on her and then, you know, and it's like her number one fear of this like rejection and all this sort of stuff. And then him just absolutely falling to bits and pieces and crying and screaming. And, and, um, the line that I alluded to earlier is him, calling Erica help the way that he says Erica help us. He's like, you know, calling to his little sister for help as he has in his arms. He's absolutely, I'm going to cry thinking about it. He's like absolutely torn apart by this. Um, (laughs) You mentioned, you mentioned Bridget Jones earlier for, for me. And, and and I think this is a fair analogy because, um, because uh, Caleb is a theater kid is I couldn't help but think of the moment at the end of Rent when Maureen says, like, Roger, Mark, help. It's Mimi. I can't get her up the stairs. It's just, like, the way that he said it sounded like that inflection to me. And I just, like, it really, it really got me. Really, really got me. And, like, in that similar sequence, we're going to zoom back to Eleven inside of Max's memories uh, right now. But, like, Eleven also being there, but him not being able to see her and her you know, M- M- Millie also brought plenty of, of fireworks to the table and, and like as Eleven is upset about Max here, but I just, just the visuals of like Lucas thinking he's alone with Max and us knowing that Eleven is there, but he doesn't know she's there is, I thought was incredible work. So very sad and very, very moving. Should we talk about Eleven incepting herself into Max here? Let's do it. Yeah. And then <laughs> okay. the here and in the in the hospital scene where our beloved Lucas is reading the talisman to Max in her hospital bed. Just an all-star showing from Lucas in this in this finale. Like, oh, he's reading aloud so earnestly. Anyway. And, and, and he had hung Eric, the Erica's drawing there. of them on the wall. Yes. Erica's there. And he had hung the and movie Erica's there. Heart-wrenching. Oh, the Sinclair is really, really fucking doing it. Also, okay. Just a need to mention... Erica hitting one of Jason's little henchmen and saying crit hit hit. as she did it after landing a swift kick to the balls. (laughs) Loved it. Loved it. Okay. (sighs) So part of the the whole plan here from afar, from inside the pizza, pizza freezer is, uh, inception essentially, right? 
that Eleven is going to piggyback into and go into layers deep into Max's mind. And then maybe also into Vecna's mind. It's confusing. Um, but so is Inception, a movie I love. Um, so she starts at the top level, which is like uh, <laughs> the gunfight in the street level Inception, um, where she's in this like memory of uh, of Max back in California, being a skater girl, etc. But then she need what she needs to get to is the snowball level which is like the swanky hotel level in Inception, right? She's good to the snowball level. Um, and they have the big confrontation in the, in, in the gym. I thought that was a great use of location, not just to call us back to season two, that that's her memory. It's very sweet. Um, but also season one, the confrontation was in the Hawkins gym, right? So I don't know a, a, a well used location. Those bleachers have seen some some it's, things, you know. Definitely <laughs> Hawkins Middle and Hawkins High. Like my goodness, um, I loved the 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 snow the choice to to make the snowball um, dance this this really pivotal setting because you know for Max and and it of course made me think back of like Lucas asking if he was going to be there in the in the memory right and like mm-hmm. you know the dance and their first kiss, but more broadly, like I, I think I've mentioned before in our pods that that, that stretch of the season two finale is like legitimately one of my favorite stranger things stretches period. And a lot of that is Dustin centric. Um, it is just like devastating to see all these people pairing off and coupling off and he's just alone and like so sad. And then Nancy comes over and, and the most I've him. ever liked Nancy Wheeler. Like she's <laughs> yes. forever. Okay. In my book because of that move. Yeah. You know, the, the hope that a, a Wheeler child can eventually recognize someone <laughs> else in a moment of need. Right. And uh, show some empathy. Um, but it just, that stretch felt like this distillation of growing up in all the ways, like good and bad, right? The pain of feeling like lonely or not good enough for other people and the real like joy of feeling like you found somebody who is interested in you and who wants to spend time with you. And maybe you're interested in that person too. And all of this talk about the heart and the heart of the party and the party and coming together and, you know, the ties that bind and the source of strength. It's such a contrast. And again, this is like, deeply Potter-esque, right? In terms of like love is this protective force. That felt like a really good choice to remind us of the depth of feeling that these characters have for each other and what an what a distinction that will be ultimately between them and Vecna, who is offering up as his most central boast that he is not interested in humanity. And what is more deeply human than forging that kind of bond with someone, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Man, school dances. I remember the record hops in Reisterstown, Maryland. (laughs) The record hops? Some memories. Yeah, that's what they're called, record hops, our middle school dances. What? Yeah, they were great. Did you go to the school in the 1950s? That's so fucking cute. <laughs> a record hops. Record hops. Yeah, they were great. Oh my god. <laughs> All right. Um the way in which um Vecna invades uh the snowball here, very quick foreshadow of the ending of like the upside down coming to Hawkins, right? He turns the gym into the upside down. 
the balloons are popping with blood, which um, I did not is like an it as a it, person it, who does not like horror. That scared me. That's that's an it <laughs> reference for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing that I will say, and you alluded to this earlier, is like the Max Eleven friendship was really only like one episode last season. And I really liked that episode A great episode, episode. A yeah. A great episode that I really liked. The material girl shopping sequence, iconic. Yeah, just like giggling in their bedroom the and like talking about something. Yeah, yeah. learning about yeah. Wonder Woman. Always thought the, you know, ethics of spying on the boys was a little dubious. A little dubious. But, you know, you're but young, like, you're learning. Yeah. <laughs> if we're, we're going to give Mike a pass for being a 15-year-old boy, I'm going to give these girls God. a pass. So... That's a great episode. I really wish that they had held on a little tighter to that friendship. Uh, especially, I think it could have worked really well. Like, if they knew they were aiming to this. They knew going into the season they were aiming to this. It would have been so easy to seed some of this into the earlier season. Like, part of why Max is feeling, and I talked about this in Volume 1, perhaps part of the reason Max is feeling so isolated and all this sort of stuff is that her one female friend is gone. Um, you know, and it could be a reason why Eleven is feeling as the way that she's, you know, like make that, make us feel that separation. But all of Max's storyline had to do with Lucas and all, and Billy and all of Eleven's storyline had to do with like Mike, you know? And so I just like, give us some of that good, good stuff before. (laughs) And then, and a roller skate um, before, you know, before you make it so important here. Do you know what I mean? So. Yeah. That seems to be, one of the more common refrains and just discussing the the finale with people. I feel like every person I've chatted with about the finale has mentioned that like it, it not that we are not interested in Elle and Max as a, a duo or a pairing, but like we, did we spend enough time with them together for it to pay off in that way and, and feel that, that seismic at the end? I, that was, I mean, it was actually one of the moments where like watching it, Adam and I turned to each other and was like, wait a minute. And especially because, again, like stylistically and structurally, the finale relied so heavily on, on quick cuts of, of prior scenes. Like, you're really seeing, oh, right, yeah, they have the same haircuts and outfits and everything we're seeing because this all took place in this really brief span of time. Like, speaking of friendships they have not forgotten about, let's talk about the best friendship on the show, which is Robin and Steve. <laughs> and Nancy's incredible. also there. Oh <laughs> I love Robin and Steve so uh, much. Love. I mean, they don't have a ton to do the finale. I'm not that mad, though, because they've had a lot to do throughout the season. So on the, on balance, they had plenty to do. Not much to do in this season except for, or in this episode, except to choke on a wall for literally 30 minutes of the episode runtime. I counted it. Uh, 30 minutes. Slow strangulation. The closed captioning was tentacle adheres wetly to them as they're on the wall. Do you want to talk about the Steve and Nancy thump conversation? <laughs> they're thumping? Or did we cover that? Yeah, let's, well, I think, you know, we talked about the the sweet Winnebago, you know, little nuggets exchange in episode eight, and we got the follow-up to that here where Steve said that he left out the most important part, you're there, you've always been there. And then Robin just comes in with her version of the, the red phone ringing in Russia, right? <laughs> Interrupting this incredibly charged moment between a couple that we're deeply invested in. I, I, one of the things that I was interested in, you know, we're, I just love Steve. You love Steve. We're in the bag for Steve. I am like totally captivated anytime Steve Harrington is sharing his heart and his feelings with us. So I was, uh, 
I, I was, you know, wrapped watching the scene. I was really interested in the Jonathan Nancy reunion at the end and the like, you know, I'm glad you were here. So there was an adult like who else would have been in charge? Steve. Oh, he's matured a lot. Like, wait, what kind of look from Jonathan and the fact that neither, you know, even though there's the wait, are we OK question from Jonathan, like neither Jonathan nor Nancy is being honest with each other. You know, Nancy about the pull that she's feeling towards Steve again, Jonathan about college. Like that's obviously I assume going to bear fruit in in season five. But. I did love, you know, it's come up multiple times in this episode and we talk about it a lot. Like there are times when the characters and strangers things say something out loud that you would prefer remain subtext here. I really liked that Steve was just like right out of the gate. I'm super confident, but I'm also an idiot, which is a brutal combination. Steve is a character who like when we get the opportunity to hear him reflect on his evolution and his growth and have him say like, I can learn, I can grow forward. I just loved and thought was really great. And then he said, thank you for giving my head the biggest thump of its life. And I was like, Joanna Robinson would say phrasing here. Joe would come in with a big old phrasing here. A hundred percent. I should say, and so like part of that is writing, but part of it is also, it's not fair. It's not fair. But some actors can get away with almost anything, Right. And Joe Curie is one of them. So charming right? and charismatic. He's yeah. so charming. That's just the case of it. So like the writing's fine. The performance is great. Hearing him call, like when Steve's like, I'm an idiot. You're just like, your heart is just like, oh, Steve, you are. We love you. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, um, I also loved the look as he was folding clothes in the um, in the in the coda. And he's watching Robin and Vicky, like the look on his face of just... <laughs> <gasps> Their friendship is really special to me. Okay, we're going to hop to the code. I just really want to briefly say uh, we did the Molotov cocktails. Nancy got her, like, gun girl moment. She loves her guns. Um, the film Zombieland had not been released by the in the 80s, but if it had, I would say you got to double tap. You guys, like, that's most important rule of Zombieland, I think, is the double tap. Uh, so they let Vecna on flames you know, he he gets shot out a window. Um, I would have looked out the window, baby, shot him from there. I don't know. They mosey on down and he's gone. And this is very uh this is very Halloween, very the end of Halloween. And we all know what that happened at the end of Halloween. There are more sequels. So Vecna will return <laughs> in some yeah. form or another. Also, kind of classic Stranger Things fashion, like we don't really need to speculate. Will tells us definitively. He's back in Hawkins. He can feel him. He's out there. You know? Okay. But I was really unhappy to see the return of Will grabs the back the, of his neck. The, the neck rope. <laughs> Just my least favorite story for Will. Anyway, okay. So we're in the coda. I, I saw a lot of people had a major issue with the abrupt two days later card. Um, I wasn't mad about it, but I just would agree that we I don't think we needed it. Like we could reasonably assume that it would take, you know, everyone a couple days to get there, I suppose. I don't know. I had my issue with it was less the oh, you're doing a two and a half hour finale and you still need to skip two days and more or not even issue. The thing I was trying to like parse is like we cut, oh, who do we cut away from? And what do we cut away from? We cut away from L in the hospital sequence with Max attempting to reach into Max's mind. And then we go back to that later and see this kind of like emptiness, right? And, and L shouting out. And one of the things that we can kind of deduce from 
the whole like, where's Lucas? He's at the hospital. You don't know. And then like Lucas saying she was dead, clinically dead for a minute. And they're saying it's a miracle. I'm paraphrasing here. Right. And then the look that Mike and Will share is that Eleven didn't tell them anything about what she did. And but sorry. No. And I was just going to say, I'd like to know why. Like, that feels like a really central thing. But this feeds into my theory. And I want to go back to what you said about Jonathan and Nancy. It feeds into my theory that every single person is going to go into this final season with like a secret, a shame, a something that is going to make them vulnerable in one way or another to whatever it is. Because we have not resolved all the shit that Hopper said about his guilt around his daughter. If Eleven is carrying guilt that she couldn't save Max, you know, like if she is is feeling like she didn't do all she could have or something like that. She made mistakes, something like that. Like I could, I like these kids keeping secrets from each other is like what they do. And the Jonathan and Nancy thing, the Nancy, Steve, Jonathan thing is the most, the strongest hint. I feel like that this is going to be something that is going to come back to haunt us in, in the next season, because I was talking to a friend of the pod, Kim Renfro, and like she was so convinced Steve was going to die in this episode, as were many people. She was so convinced. And the main reason she was convinced was because they were hitting that love triangle shit so hard. And she was like, why are we doing this? Why is everyone invested in Steve and Nancy? It makes no sense unless Steve dying is then therefore going to hurt the most number of characters all at once. So that was her math that she was doing. It was very sound math. But... I think the reason they're hitting that so hard is that we go into season five and Nancy is not telling Jonathan everything. Jonathan's not telling Nancy everything. You know, Robin is like, has, has found a girl that she's flirting with, but she's still queer and holding that a secret. And Will's holding his queerness a secret. And like Mike and Elle aren't necessarily talking to each other. And you know, like all, all this stuff is still roiling up inside of them in a way that I think Vecna, who is a master of secrets, master of shame, uh, is going to exploit in some way in the final season. Yeah, no, I, th- I I think that's really sharp and really astute. And like, you know, we got that line from Jonathan in the Will conversation. You know, right now we need to talk more than ever. <laughs> and when the characters are unable to do that, it, it can leave them, uh, even though it's a very relatable thing, it can leave them vulnerable. I think to the L point, like, the one of the things I was trying to interrogate is like, if her guilt is a so her, her her guilt is like that she didn't do enough. Well, they know that she feels that way because she told Mike that and Mike tells Will that that she's like, oh, you know, Brenner warned her that she wasn't ready. And now she's worried that maybe he was right. But to not tell them that she brought Max back from the dead, that she can like Grogu force For, heal. Force heal. Yeah. Yeah. Is like a really <laughs> big thing to not be sharing? And is she like coming to terms with what that reflects about her own power still? Or did she know that she could do that? Did she know that it worked? Maybe she didn't know it worked or I I don't know. I'm not trying to make excuses for the show, but like maybe she didn't know it worked or maybe, uh, maybe she's afraid they'll be scared of her if they know that she can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. And we have, you know, the mic line about how he's never been afraid of her, but we know that part of the reason he needs to say that is because that's one of her anxieties and fears is that they are afraid of her. And that would be a a pretty massive thing, right? I I have the the power to bring people back from the dead. Now, some of this connects to the like, 
we'll hit this in, in you know in our season five look ahead in the mailbag but the time travel of it all right with the possibility of like winding back the clock uh for for deaths or otherwise but the other thing that i was thinking about and this gets back to that larger like l vecna harry voldemort connection the this idea of absorbing powers right so if this is something that 11 can do our understanding based on what we know so far about him having absorbed her powers via that bite is that he can do this too, right? This would be a thing that he could do. But one of the things I'm interested in kind of thinking about is, okay, we talk a lot, by way I mean I, about <laughs> Horcruxes. Like, I've, I just think the Horcrux comp is like so palpable here. But one of the things that I think is important to remember with the end of, and you know, Joe opened the pod by thoughtfully and sensitively saying we wouldn't spoil other stories. Here's a spoiler for the end of Harry Potter. You've been warned. <laughs> Fast forward 45 seconds if you'd like to. It doesn't just hinge on the fact that Harry is a horcrux and that he is a tether to for, for Voldemort, to the mortal coil. It's all it's it's the inverse horcrux. It's that Voldemort dared to take a piece of Harry, to take Harry's blood into him and to bring Lily's protection into him. And like a lot of Dumbledore's King's Cross chapter explanation hinges on that aspect. This like this this way that it works in in both directions, right? And so like the bite in the end of season 3 and Vecna taking Eleven's powers, how much of Vecna's power absorption is like a conscious thing that he needs to decide to do? Because we've heard this description many times about the way that he, you know, absorbs. I ask that because like, did Eleven, you know, we know that there's this larger, just the, the connection between one and the other, the other kids in Hawkins' lab because of what one tells us about Brenner's experiments and this, you know, he couldn't control, so he sought to recreate, right? His program. But beyond that, like when Eleven initially defeated one in 79, did she absorb, you know, you noted, oh, did he absorb all of the powers of the other kids? I think it's reasonable to deduce yes. Does that mean that she then did too? If she took all of his powers, like how much of this is going in both directions? And a lot of the mailbag questions that we got hinge on some version of, is Eleven going to be the one who has to close the gate? Like, can you really, really, really ever sever this connection if Eleven is alive? And I guess one of the reasons I'm bringing up the Horcrux and blood uh, protection element here or, or parallel here is... There's a part of me that thinks it's like absolutely Eleven has to choose to sacrifice herself and die, but also I think a, a kind of a clear roadmap for how she could do that and live. And then there's the time travel aspect of it still and the fact that the Upside Down is frozen in time and what it might mean to go. If, if the Upside Down is encroaching now on the right side up of Hawkins, does that mean that 1983 is coming back with it? Because the Upside Down is frozen in time, right? Let's talk about let's talk about a couple things that the Duffers have said about season five. And it's not much. And again, there might be more interviews out by the time you listen to this, but this is what we have so far. One, they have they mentioned that they might have to do a time jump given how much the kids are growing, that they were like thinking of that, which is bizarre to me given the imminent danger of what's happening to Hawkins here. You can't end the season this way and then do a time jump. I, I don't see how. 
Right. A lot of questions. Yeah. They've also said that they will explain why the upside down looks like it does and is stuck in 1983 in season five. So that they have an idea as to why that is. That is coming. That I is feel like part the of part of part of the why that we at least can glean already is because that's when the mother gate opened and everything began. And so Eleven needing to seal the opening that she made at that point in time, even though we know the first gate that sent one through was earlier, like that all tracks. But what are the implications of 83 as a time period kind of encroaching onto the main time period and all of the clock imagery and the ticking and the chiming? And the, we've talked about time travel a million times already. Like that didn't that didn't have an impact here at the end of the season, like I thought it would. And now it feels inevitable in season five. And I've I've gone from being really excited for it to a little bit nervous about it. <laughs> the on the time beat, there is this great Reddit um, post by ooh Danger Flirt. I love a Reddit username, Danger Flirt. Uh, who fancies themselves a D&D expert. And they have a lot of examination of like what the character of Vecna, who's a real character in D&D, like how knowledge about that could inform what we might see in the in final season. This idea that Vecna has a, a essentially a horcrux, a phylactery is what it's called in D&D, which has, I guess, its origins in, in, in Jewish heritage. But like, it's essentially like an amulet, a talisman, if you will, of, uh, you know, Oh, her crux. That's what it is. And a lot of people are guessing that maybe that there's an object on Earth that keeps Vecna connected to Earth. And a lot of people are guessing that it's the grandfather clock in the Creel house, which feels like maybe that's true. Or maybe it's a person. Maybe it's Max being alive. Maybe it's Eleven is the thing that's keeping him there. Eleven is the Horcrux. Makes a little bit more sense. Something like that. Um, but some sort of vessel for Vecna and, or a vessel for Vecna. Like, so what I've been saying about what I meant when I said I felt like Vecna really needed to be the villain of the final season is that I really felt like we need we need something humanoid, that that's so much more interesting. So there's a couple options here. We could bring back Jamie Campbell Bauer either in the suit or looking like he did as the orderly if we want to. We don't know exactly what Vecna is going to look like in the real world if indeed that's where he is. Or are we going to give Sadie Sink an entire season of getting to be like Vecna? That could be something that could happen. Or are we going to have Noah Schnapp do some things? Or is he going to bounce around? Um, I'm interested in the particles seemingly being able to bring people back to life. Are we going to see the resurrection of dead characters at all? Like, is that something that could happen? Like, I'm so conf- I'm still remain confused about the exact significance of the particles and what they did to the demodogs in Russia. I remain confused by that pronoun of them. Well, maybe that's part of why Eleven is able to resurrect now, because that's a power that Vecna has that she has absorbed because of their power swap or power share. And maybe that's why she's like, oh, shit, what does it mean that I can do this? And is starting to realize that she has some of one, more of one maybe than she realized inside of her. That would be interesting. Right. You open the door, right? Right. You open the, the door. We got the hop, like in the very sweet, you know, haven't even mentioned this, like lovely to see Hopper and Eleven uh, finally reunite and get, you know, the the the, the Byers family <laughs> reuniting all the characters back together. We did. You mentioned that. But um, 
the 11 hopper exchange included a mention of like leaving the door open that th- that three leave the door open three inches the call back to his letter and it's also to me like a that feels just like a very deliberate in addition to the sweetness of it and her telling him that she got the letter and all of that that's like a right 11 is is the one who has left these gates open. And now Vecna has decided to open the doors himself, but still she's got to be the one to seal them. I think to your max point, like I was thinking about the, her eyes, that those clouded eyes. Milky. Yeah. Yes. That indicates it's from, you know, the, what we've seen so far, this like link to Vecna and when 11 in the hospital sequence and then the return to that, moment is like searching and reaching out for Max in the psychic realm and can't find anything like this idea that Vecna could deploy Max as um, a vessel feels like very much in play. And I, I, I think, yeah, like could will be a part of that too. That all feels like very like plausible, I think. Cause there's a little bit of Vecna and will still, right? Yeah. Neither. In theory, neither can live while the other survives. Uh, an enduring, confounding Harry Potter prophecy, in in my view. Um, but it does it does seem like if there there's some about eleven and one, and some of one and eleven through this transactional biting process, but also what we've learned, which is our theory that perhaps Henry is technically her biological father, if that's how she was created. The whole thing, and this is this is something that was first flagged for me by friend of the pod, Dave Gonzalez. He's like, I didn't, I didn't peg. He said it seems a little late for them to do their Empire Strikes Back season, but I guess that's what this is. Um, and we mentioned the sort of like Luke with the X-wing Dagobah comp of Eleven leaving the lab to save her friends, and in, in last week's ep- or last episode, but ending with Max in a coma, and. Our, our friends defeated, but looking towards the horizon with purpose is classic Empire. And of course, a big part of Empire is Luke finding out that Vader is his father. So, you know, it's all it's all in the Star Wars. Well, that would support there. a time jump if we're moving toward our return to the Jedi leveling up. But I agree with what you said. Like, I just don't see how the upside down is encroaching uh, uh, against the wild flowers like that. And the sky is on fire. By the way, I was glad we got the mention on the local news report of like some people are uh, not so sure this is an earthquake and think that a doorway to another world is open. I'm like, man, I wonder if that's because of the massive plumes of smoke and red <laughs> lightning in the sky that some people don't think this is an earthquake. <laughs> Thank you. Citizens of Hawkins. Similarly, there's this line that Vecna Henry says to Eleven when he's caught monologuing. He says, is that what you did? Did you kill me? Uh, That feels very important. Again, though, just like a a one-to-one Harry Voldemort. Like, he was not (laughs) initially defeated and that essence lives on and then reforges and what is a human form and what do you need to achieve it and do you even want that and what other forms can you use to deploy as your soldiers? I think like you you mentioned that um, that great Reddit thread on the the D&D clues, um, which you shared with me this morning and I took a look at and I, as have as I've noted before, I've never played D&D, very eager to play a campaign before season five of this show. But I was really interested in the part of that post about like the deal making 
that Vecna mm-hmm. does. Vecna, the deal maker. Yeah, yeah, because one of the things, obviously, like on the one hand, it is not notable to uh, have run it running up that hill accompany a scene in season four of Stranger Things because it does five hundred forty-seven times rough count. But I was really interested with the lyrics that accompanied the moment in the mind palace when Vecna is screaming and this is not the Vecna that Steve and Robin and, um, and Nancy are burning in the upside down in the attic, the, the Vecna in the, um, in the, in the psychic realm that L is, is facing screams, begins to vaporize and the lyrics that accompany that part are, do you want to know, know that it doesn't hurt me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to hear about the deal I'm making? And this idea, again, that kind of Horcrux comp, like the tethers between him and the hive mind, him and Elle potentially. But then it got me thinking again about like what exactly he found in the upside down in the first place with the the the, the shadowy form that becomes what we have long called the, the, the mind flayer. What is that arrangement? And is that one that Eleven will ultimately be able to trump and control and and take command of, either because she has this piece of Vecna inside of her or because of her own powers? Like, what is the deal and can she break it? And further, I would say, the lyrics from Running Up the Hill... And if I only could make a deal with God and get him to swap our places. So let's talk about the history of like uh, realms and gates that need to be closed in fantasy, sci-fi literature, right? The big one that you and I have talked about in various places uh, is uh, His Dark Materials. Spoilers for His Dark Materials. Um, When we, in order to close that fissure, we need to separate our beloved protagonists who have fallen in love with each other, Will and Lyra. They have to be on either sides of, you know, the fabric of these worlds in order to keep everything closed. And there's a poignant- Devastating. <laughs> devastating parting, right? Uh, yeah. They have their bench. And here identical thing happens in Doctor Who. Sorry, I have to. But like Rose and the Doctor have to be in different realities or else it'll rip open the fabric of reality. So they have to have this very poignant parting on either side of, of a reality. Um, it gets me every time I can see a version of the show where like, cause a lot of people are like, Oh, 11 has to die. Maybe, maybe she has to die the way that Harry dies, which is not dying. Right. Really in the end, or maybe it's that 11 has to go to the upside down. And that's the only way to close this all off forever. And maybe she can make the upside down into a beautiful place, you know, not an ugly hellscape, but maybe she can like live in some kind of paradise in the upside down, but she has to swap places with Vecna in order to keep Hawkins safe. And maybe she and good old Mike, the emotionally intelligent heart of the group can like meet in the like black space with the water uh, on (laughs) on the floor as like part of their you know, pen pal ship or something like that. But like, it feels like a possibility. Not, I'm not, I'm not putting all my chips on it, but like, that's a classic fantasy sci-fi. I got to stay on this side and you got to stay on this side, sort of parting of the ways. Absolutely. I, 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 I really agree. I think that like, 
One of the things that's really painful to think about in anticipating that is, and there's always a, a somber element to that when it happens in a fantasy story, but it's often paired with this real progress for the protagonist or at least a recognition that something seminal has changed about their life. Like Frodo saying that there's nothing left for him in the Shire anymore and not being able to go back to that prior part of his life is like devastatingly sad and a real parting of the ways between the fellowship, right? The members of some of the members of the fellowship were most invested in, but it's also him recognizing something about himself that he needs to in order to move forward, not only literally, but like emotionally. The, the, the thing that feels so different about Eleven is like no one would be there with her. I know it's devastating, but like unless someone decides to go with her like Hopper or something like that. But like Frodo deciding he has to leave this world is not like a, it's this like, I've come back from the war and I don't belong to this world anymore. Yeah, a feeling of of separation. You know, and he does get to like go to the Grey Havens with the elves, but it's just like, I don't, I don't belong here. You know? Yeah, absolutely. That's why I'm saying it's devastating, but at least he has a chance to forge a new fellowship with somebody else because he's not alone. Like who would 11 do that with? That's just really sad to think about. Um, I also thought about like avatar a lot and the convergence, the harmonic convergence watching this finale and like the, I love to think about harmonic convergence. You know, the spirit wilds, like the incursion of the spirit wilds after like Cora leaves the portal open, but also just this idea of like Rava and Vatu and like, these two forces eternally battling for the fate of the world feels very like El Vecna. Um, and also then you think about like the merging of Rava and Juan to get the Avatar spirit, right? And like, could there be a version of that here in some way? Yeah. In um, Ursula K. Le Guin's book, Wizard of Earthsea, mm-hmm. which... Uh, Stepmom's absolute favorite. Shout out, Debbie. Oh, which Dustin's girlfriend was reading, Susie was reading uh, in a previous episode. That ends with our spoilers for Wizard of Earthsea. That ends with our protagonist absorbing this evil force and turning it good by absorbing, you know, d- taking it within himself and therefore neutralizing it. So maybe Eleven could just get away with just, you know, eating, Vec- you know, the Vecna b- bad dust stuff <laughs> oh, on, the, on, the, love it. on the turn back time front in terms of like what could happen here it does feel somewhat significant that 11 goes inside one of max's earlier memories like to younger max you know like who 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 else's earlier memories can she like hop into will that be necessary or useful going forward and the other option for a time travel plot line and we talked about this a little bit in volume one is if we turn back time and 11 never came to Hawkins what would the difference be and um I don't love that I only love a version of that if like our main characters can remember her because I do not want to erase all of the character development that our main characters have gone through I would not feel good about that that's that. That's why I was saying earlier. I've started to feel nervous. Either like because I've loved the idea of introducing time travel into this, and it's felt like so heavily teased throughout the whole run. But if it is, if it ends up coming into play, either to 
do something like that or even like unwind some of the deaths of consequence that feels like it has the potential to sap. There's that old stakes word again. Like, because the thing that the story hinges on for me much more than any of the the plot is like the journey that the characters have shared together and to not have that happen. Like, a, what? who is Hopper to us as a character if Will never went into the Upside Down and he and Joyce didn't forge their bond and Eleven never made, you know, the, the, the he and Eleven never made like ego extravaganzas together. Like, who is who is he? For us then etc 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 i don't know that's a that's a <laughs> tricky one it's, it's very complicated one last thing i'll say in this episode dustin my pal my best friend dustin is giving out water to all the people in the like emergency shelter and he says water vital for all forms of life which brings me back to our water conversation from volume one which is what is the significance of the like upside down fissures not being able like no water in the upside down what what is going on there Do, does it matter at all i don't know we did get one of the greatest sci-fi movies of all time um m night Shyamalan's signs which i have seen i'm not kidding like 50 times uh there is a reference to that movie in the in this episode when the when the demobats are on the roof and he's like they're on the roof like that's a that's a signs reference and I loved it. Uh, but I don't know if the water in this show will be as important as the water is in science. Um, but I, what I do love doing with you, Mallory, uh, is talking about literally anything, but also like taking a tour through fantasy sci-fi properties we have known and trying to sort of like lay some of those rules or those some of those profound stories onto the show, especially because more than any other show that exists, this is a show that is in actively engaging in existent familiar tropes, you know? Yes. So. There are definitely times where <laughs> the response to the, the efforts to find some of those parallels might be like, not everything is game of Thrones. And it's like, you know, to me it is, but the Sometimes. Duffers are, yeah, they're so actively in dialogue with the stories that influence them and that influence the characters that it feels like very, very, very fair game here. And actually like an essential exercise. <laughs> We should say that the uh, the book that Lucas is reading to Max is The Talisman, as you mentioned, Stephen King, Peter Straub. And that book basically involves an upside down. And there's something, there's a concept called twinning. It exists in other Stephen King's books. Very hard to explain. But essentially, like, there's a thing where, like, if you die in one world but not in the other, I don't know. Like, uh, is it just, like, a little Easter egg for their number one f- famous fan, Stephen King? Or are we to take something from the fact that it's the talisman specifically? And especially that that specific line that he's reading is about a char- the main character sort of going to their analog of the Upside Down for the first time and sort of being like, whoa, here I am in this other place. Um, so, I don't know. That feels deliberate then. <laughs> I have not read that book, but it felt also like it's such a it's a scene that we are just so actively paying attention to because it's so sweet, right? So it's like not a subtle Easter egg. It feels like a clue you're meant to to analyze. Uh, you mentioned Max dying and then not dying, saying she wasn't ready. That of course makes us think of good old Pity Parker, right? I don't, uh, you know. I don't want to go. Um, I don't want to go. But I also for me, Doctor so Who, good. David Tennant saying, I don't want to go. Oh my god! I could just like look at a gif of that and I cry. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> oh god, 
We talked about the the needle drops, Metallica, more Kate Bush. I have a question about the Kate Bush in this episode because, like, it's possible this was already scored, but it's also possible that they, like, did this the return to Kate Bush because the first use of it was so popular. They had time to do that if they wanted to. I don't know the answer to that, but... Fiddling until after the episodes actually aired, so, yeah. <laughs> Tweak until the end and beyond. But I, know, <laughs> I know you meant fiddling like tweaking, but I was like literally fiddling. fiddling. Um, anyway, um, uh, oh, should we do mailbag? Is there anything do else we want to talk about? Um, I don't think so. I think we we speculated, and you know, we'll, we'll parse those interviews when they when they surface, and who knows how long the wait for season five will be, but plenty of time to revisit our theories between now and then. I, I will say I'm excited to do a rewatch, even though I just did one heading into the season. I am now excited with like the back the mind flare clarity to, to return to the text and see what stands out anew. I think that'll be a pretty, pretty rewarding rewatch before season five. Mailbag time. Uh, Jomi is not here. He is on vacay. So it is the two of us navigating your great, thoughtful questions and prompts here. I'm so excited to for you all to hear Mallory's answer to this because she's already told me about this. Paul asks, would you watch a sequel to Stranger Things where we follow Steve and Robin as they bounce from job to job trying to find their loves? Mallory, what's your pitch for a Stranger Things uh, spinoff or, or prequel? I just think that we need the show set in the in the video store. And frankly, I think we deserve it. And if we are, are, are deprived of it, I will I will be wounded and uh, dismayed. That's, that's how I feel about this. <laughs> this is something that we deserve. I would also like to see the future show of uh, the, the Harrington family, you know, the Nuggets, uh, driving across the country in the Winnebago, plopping themselves in the sand. <laughs> and when he said, by the way, going to Yellowstone, I that's talk about the time travel that I want. I want... Um, I want Steve Harrington to end up on the Dutton Ranch with Kevin Costner. <laughs> the true visit to Yellowstone. What about you, Joe? What uh, what Steve Robin spinoff are you hoping for? I want. I would take Steve and Robin the college years, and obviously they have a job that's going to get them through college. But they go to college together. I mean, I, the, the the truly the only things that I care about are Steve. That's not true. I care most deeply about Steve and Robin and their friendship. As you mentioned, that look he gives her as she's like. You know, flirting with Vicky over the peanut butter. <laughs> Woof. There's also a moment, speaking of Stranger Things not stepping on the gas too hard, and, and I want to give it praise every time it does that, um, when Jonathan and Nancy, like, back hug. Yeah, the, the pat on the back. They don't do, I was like, I was like, okay, here comes the, like, really eye-rolly cut to Steve looking sad. They didn't do that. He was, because he's walk, he's walking past. Robin gives a little gentle and he's just walking past and we don't need to cut his face and be like, oh no, Steve's upset. You know, I was just like, that was, that was beautifully quickly done. Loved it. Um, I want to zoom back to the, um, this idea of deal making for a second, because it made me think of something, which is a Stephen King book that again, front of the show, Dave Gonzalez made me read, uh, called Needful Things, um, which was actually the inspiration for Stranger Things, the title, um, and Needful Things is about um, Stephen King loves to do stories about a, a devil type character comes to town and what do they offer and what do they, you know, whatever. And so there's a character in that book who is a 
devil analog or whatever, who like basically comes to town, runs a shop and sort of offers these people, these items in the shop that some sort of fulfill some sort of need they have. And it's like a monkey's paw always with like all of these items. And so this idea of like Vecna comes to town, comes to Hawkins and has things to like tempt or manipulate people with. I mean, maybe that's not what we get. Maybe instead we're going to get the fucking full-on monster invasion that Nancy talked about in her, you know, maybe it's just going to be like weird, goopy monsters, and it might be. But they really are setting up all these characters for this need, to be in this needful thing sort of place where there's like a wound, a secret, a something that a, a, a tempter, a deal maker could exploit. Love that. Um, all right. Brandon asks, where does this season rank among the four? For me, it, he puts an order of two, one, three, four, two being the best, I suppose, four being the worst. Mm. For me, I would rank, I think number one is still the best and purest for me, just in terms of us being sort of surprised and delighted by this thing that exists. And then I think I would put it two, four, three. I think three was the weakest for me. What do you, oh, what do wow. you think? Oh, wow. Interesting. Um... Reserve the right to change my answer after I do a full rewatch, just in the the heat of the moment, coming off the the initial season four, volume two watch here. I'm gonna I'm gonna say one for sure. One is definitely first and two is definitely last for me. Those feel easy. I'm a little torn on my ordering of three and four in the second and third spots. I'm gonna go for now one, three, four, two. I really like season three. I think it's underrated. I enjoy it. My issue with season three, I like the mall stuff and and some of that stuff. My issue with season three, and I felt it, I felt it at the time, and I felt it on my rewatch, um, was I really hate the Hopper character in that season. He's full of so much frustrating rage, um, and he's always violent, but he's just extra violent in that season in a way that I just sort of like... I don't know how to root for this guy. This guy is not the hopper that I am excited to root for. But I was talking again to a friend of the pod, Kim Renfro, and we were talking about like maybe if if we if we can reverse engineer, as you say, the full rewatch and think about Vecna working on them this whole time in various ways, then maybe we could see this sort of like weird, ultra dark, darker than season one place that Hopper goes to in season three, where he's just this like deeply shitty dad like you know and I understand that like the pain of your daughter growing up and you feeling insecure about it but like the stuff he does in that season it still it still doesn't sit very well with me and so but maybe if I can see in the in the vein of like this is a weakness that Vecna as the mind flayer is all along preying on then like maybe it works for me but that's that's my issue with three um I just want I just want to root for Hopper you know like you and, and the rest of America <laughs> all right Marshall asks He's Eddie, the best one and done character since the Red Viper. Oh, boy. A lot of, lot of similar energy. And listen, if Joe Quinn wants to make his way to his own Disney Plus show where he gets an adorable Muppet adopted child, <laughs> I would love that for him. Oh, my God. Is there higher praise to be offered than a Red Viper comp? I'm not sure there is. It's the ultimate compliment. I'm really interested if Joe Quinn who is not only British, but like looks pretty different without the Eddie wig on. I'm wondering, I'm so curious to see how he parlays this, you know, high stock that he has attained here. Like 
where is he going to take that career-wise? Who's knocking? You know, I'm sure someone at Disney has already come knocking on his door. But This was know. something that Juliet and I talked about before the season. But like a great not, episode. Not yes. a lot of the Stranger Sorry. Things kids. They're super famous on like Instagram and TikTok, but they're not in a ton of other things. I mean, they're in some things, you know, Millie's in the Godzilla movies and Finn was in Ghostbusters and everything. But like, and so it's like, not like they're in nothing, but you don't see them in the number of things that you would expect. I wonder when that will start to happen. I know. And like even Joe Curie, like, you know, he was in um, some things, but like, you would really expect his his hot, you know, it, like David Harbour, I think, has parlayed this into the most um, yeah. stuff. It's a, it's so, yeah. MCU character now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that'd be interesting to know. Um, I, I, I haven't, I'm, I'm going to bring him up now because I haven't, I forgot to bring him up before. But as far as we know, Owens is still alive and hopefully not still handcuffed to a pipe in the middle of an abandoned lab in the desert. Um, but I'm hopeful that like he comes back to help Eleven train in the final season, uh, a better, a better Yoda than Brenner was to her, you know, for sure. Yeah, that would be, that <laughs> would be bar, awesome. But, so. I hope to see him again. I mean, his, uh, his pal, you know, dropped off Hop and, and Joyce at the cabin. So they're, they're in touch, I hope, and maybe looking for him and <gasps> ensuring he's okay and not just indisposed. <laughs> I call that lady, lady on the other side of the phone. There's some weird drop threads around her. Like when he's like, please go check in. Please send some of your guys to go check on Max Mayfield and her friends. They never do. Like, I guess, typical government, whatever. Anyway, uh, all right. Final questions from Rachel. The most important question we've ever been asked in mailbag, I believe. Rachel asks, what are your top three subtitles? Tentacles undulating is a top one for me. So Mallory Rubin, do you want to go like back and forth? Do you want to start? Do you want me Let's to start? Let's do it. This is, you, you should start. I'll just say this is nearly impossible to narrow down. There's no bad choice here. This list could be 500 long and we wouldn't, we wouldn't exhaust the options. I'm going to come in hot with fissure, writhing, wetly. It's good. I didn't know a fissure could ride, let alone wetly. But thanks, uh, thanks, Stranger Things. Oh my God. Absolutely incredible stuff. Um, I often like to avoid picking one of the examples that is offered up in the prompt because, you know, more variety if we don't do that. But I can't not pick tentacles undulating moistly. It's an all-timer. It's an absolute <laughs> Hall of Fame entry. It's astonishing. And almost everything is measured against that exact <laughs> that exact description. Just incredible stuff. So that has to be on my list. All right. Number two for me is <laughs> this is the Victor Krill flashback. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sinister music overlaid with jaunty big band music. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. We got the a lot of music descriptions. Yeah. 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 So good. Tender. It was like, it was like quirky synth was one of them. And I was like, okay, sure. All right. What's your number two? My second one is uh, from the director's cut extended edition of the Joyce Hopper conversation about their respective sex streams. Uh, not actually, but in my head canon, it is. It's gate pulsates wetly. 
great. All right. Oh my beautiful, God. beautiful stuff from you. I want to get you a t-shirt that says Gate Pulsates Wetly. <laughs> remarkable. <laughs> Absolutely remarkable. In, in brackets. In brackets and all lowercase. All right. I can't, I cannot in good conscience leave this segment without giving you the one that started it all, which is flesh distends wetly. Never before, never since have I heard a better phrase than flesh distends wetly. Mallory, what do you got? It's a top bar, our coaching tree for this entire exercise. Um, you know, I went, I went just off the finale for, for all of these. And so I'm going to, I'm going to oh, go for my number okay. one with, uh, with, uh, one I've already mentioned and talked about today, but Joyce couldn't, Moans? Have, couldn't have loved it more. <laughs> Joyce Moans feels like a real promise for uh, <laughs> a future plot line. And I, for one, can't wait. Joyce would deserves you rather, to Would you rather Joyce Moans or, by the way, the ring reverse contains adult content or Joyce Moans wetly? Like, <laughs> I mean, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully one leads to the other. Hopefully one and the same. We also got an incredible hopper grunting gingerly in the uh, run up to <laughs> Joyce Moans. So, you know. We also got to both exclaim again. That feels like really a, a promise for, wow. for the future. <laughs> mom, mom, mom and dad had a great trip to Russia. Oh my mom and dad God. should go on more Encyclopedia Britannica trips as far as I know I'm concerned. All right. That does it for Stranger Things. Oh, did we technically get under the runtime of the episode? Maybe not quite. Uh, maybe squeaking in there by, by a, a, a hair. Uh, so I'll get out of here quickly. So maybe we could have a hope of getting in under the runtime. So thanks as always to Mallory, obviously, please follow the Ringerverse on all the social networks and, you know, subscribe, like, and subscribe as the kids would say, uh, we'll be back Wednesday, midnight boys, pew, pew, it's Marvel, the boys. And, um, I just want to thank our general Gopal for his production work on this episode. And of course the wonderful, incredible, amazing, Carlos Cherboga is working on a Sunday with us. Thank you, Carlos. And we will see you on Thursday for Miss Marvel, which in which things will definitely be chittering and pulsating less, probably. Bye-bye. <laughs>